All right, thank you. Um, it's good to see you. I'm going to take a risk here and tell a story that I told a while back um, that I want to make an application uh, a little differently this morning. And um, it's one of my favorite uh, stories out of the world of sports. Uh, John Cassius was, uh, was the chaplain of the Chicago Bears during the, uh, uh, the, the 80s, during the, the heyday when the Bears were winning some championships. And uh, Jim McMahon, you remember, was the quarterback. And Refrigerator Perry, big 338-pound Refrigerator Perry, was that that prototype of the really big defensive end uh, at that time. And Cassius, who was the chaplain, was sitting with Jim McMahon, uh, the quarterback, in a team meeting. And uh, and Ditka, and some of you who've heard this story, you, know, you can just shout the punchline out when we get there, okay? But um, But they're sitting together, and Ditka is conducting a team meeting, and he looks at Refrigerator Perry and says, says, Perry, when I finish talking here, I want you to lead the team in the Lord's Prayer. And immediately, McMahon notices that beads of sweat begin to form on Refrigerator Perry's brow. And uh, McMahon leans over to Cassius, the chaplain, and says, he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. I'll bet you 50 bucks he can't say the Lord's Prayer. And so, so they're sitting back in the back of the room shaking hands on their bet, and uh, sure enough, as soon as Dicka finishes uh, speaking and his pep talk and calls on Refrigerator Perry to pray, Perry bows his head, pauses, hesitates for a few minutes, and then prays. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And, and of course, um, Cassius starts uh, giggling in the back of the room, and, but McMahon hands him a $50 bill and says, I didn't know he knew the Lord's Prayer. But here's my point, and I've told that story before, but I love the story because the reality is for most of us, the first prayers that we learned, those were the prayers. There was, you know, one we prayed at, you know, like at the dinner table, and then we prayed that prayer at night. How many of you learned that prayer early in your life? And then, see, I, here's, here's my thinking this week was, wow. We got five years, five years, four-year-olds praying, um, I, you know, if I should die before I wake. I mean, how young is it, you know, but do we need to start learning about the uncertainties of life? I mean, how, how young do we need to begin to contemplate um, our mortality? Like age five? I mean, how, I mean, I thought about that. That's a pretty serious theological concept for a five-year-old to try to wrap his brain around this idea of, you know, of uh, how the life really works and the uncertainties and the certainty of death. And no, none of us know when, do we? That's pretty serious stuff. And um, so I thought about that. You know, it's, you know, how soon do we get schooled up on how life works with its troubles, with its disappointments, with the trials that are that are going to come uh, in our lives and the challenges that we're, we're going to face. You see, my sister Ann was the one who taught me much in this area. And my, my sis, she's just barely, almost, well, almost eight years older than I am, and so she babysat me a lot. And so as a little kid, as a little kid, I would whine and complain when I wouldn't get my way, and uh, you know, or I didn't get something that I wanted. And my sister, this is how my sister handled that. I would say, I would say, well, this is what I want. And my sister would say, just answer me yes or no. Do you always get what you want? And I had to choose. 
And sometimes I would say, no. And she would say, always, she would say, well, this is no exception. <laughs> She'd say it just like that. And so I would, I'd work with that one and then I decide, okay, so then I would take the risk and she would say, well, do you always get what you want? And I would say, yes. And she would go, surprise! <laughs> she, at an early age, she was teaching me about the uncertainty, not only the uncertainty of life, but the certainty that you're not going to get what you want. All right? And we're talking about, uh, is we're, we're going to finish the book of First Peter. We started it last uh, fall, and we've, we've done three series. The first series we did takes the first S, the, the doctrine of salvation that's found in the first, first chapter and a half. And then we, we talked about those five areas of submission in the life of the Christian that are found in, in the, the middle of chapter 2 and, and going forward into uh, into. Uh, chapter 3 and through the middle of chapter 3. And now we're going to talk in this series about how do we be a Christian? How, you know, how to be a Christian in a world of hurt. In a world that's full of uncertainty and difficulty and hurt and challenges and trials and sometimes rejection and even persecution as the, the, uh, the church uh, that Peter was writing to was getting ready to experience. And so... Uh, so let's read, uh, I want you to just read this first verse in, from chapter 4 and verse 1 to kind of set up our conversation for the day because this is the key verse of these, this paragraph of, of verses 1 through 7. So read this key verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now there's a guy in the Old Testament. His name was Jeremiah. In the first chapter of his book, he talks about receiving this call from God at a very young age. And so he follows God's script for his life. He, he's, a, he's tender-hearted. He's teachable. He wants to be obedient. And God calls him and he responds you know, I'm just a kid, but I'm, I'm going to do all the things, God, that you want me to do. And God says, I want you to go out there and I want you to tell my people everything that I tell you, I want you to tell them. That's what a prophet does, right? So being a kid, this young man goes out. His assumption was, now remember, he was not called to speak to the Assyrians or the Ninevites he was called to speak in Jerusalem to God's people, his own countrymen. So he went and began to speak the word of God. And here's what he experienced. By, see, by chapter 15 in his book, he quits. He's done. Folds up his little table and his little notebook and he walks away. He makes this statement to God, and he says, in effect, when I heard what you wanted me to do, God, you know, I, I loved it. And I, I did everything you wanted me to do. And now let me tell you, God, what it cost me. I'm alone now. Your people that you told me to go to, they have turned their backs on me, they now not only don't listen to me, 
but they shun me. And he says, I'll tell you something else, God. You haven't come through for me. I'm hacked off. I'm angry. I'm done with this. He's feeling all alone, isolated. Now he's not getting the response that he thought. People would rather listen to false prophets and all that power of positive thinking stuff that's going on in his day. And now he's totally ostracized. He's feeling isolated and he's alone. And he's, he's getting back hatred from the people and persecution. Abuse from God's own people. So intense that it made this man who wrote probably one of the, the, great, the great prophetic books of the Old Testament. In, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, it made him want to quit. And he did. At least for a season. He quit and he blamed God for it. The rejection was just shattering to him. He figured, hey, I'm God's spokesman. I'm doing everything he asked me to do. Hey, God, I'm honoring you with my life. I'm speaking your truth. Surely if I'm honoring you, you will honor me and you will take care of me and you will bless me and you will protect me. But when the problems came and the difficulties and the suffering started and it got intense, he quit. So let's be honest for just a minute. You ever quit? Mm -hmm. Some of us in here. You see, we figure, if I love God, and if I'm trying to follow Him, if I'm doing what the Word says, if I'm doing those things, well, I may have a few bumps and bruises along the way, but as I go through Life, I won't experience big pain and big losses because after all, God's looking out for me. Isn't that what Amy Grant's saying? Angels watching over me. And then when it hits, we get frustrated and upset, disillusioned about our faith. And it gets shaky, and then we get discouraged, and we quit. So stay honest for a minute here. You know, there's some folks in this room that probably won't be here next year. I've been around here long enough. I've seen it again and again. Something happens in your life, and things get tough, and things don't go the way you think they ought to go. And you feel like, well, God just flunked his, you know, his tryout here. I was trying out the faith. I was, you know, I was doing all the right things, saying I'm showing up at the right places. And but he didn't come through for me. Listen to what Peter says. And you're keeping in mind the context here that the early church, the church that Peter is writing, is right on the the cusp, they're beginning to suffer persecution. And as that continues to grow, it will be suffering like you and I have never known. 
Also keep in mind that Peter is very time conscious. He, he mentions time over and over again in his letter to First Peter, to the you know in in this letter, because he knows that his time is significantly short. You know the, the scholars believe that Peter wrote this letter around 62 A.D. They believe that Paul was martyred somewhere between 64 and 66 A.D. and that Peter was crucified upside down shortly after by the same emperor that had Paul beheaded because he was a Roman citizen had Peter crucified and Peter requested to be crucified as you probably know upside down rather than to mirror exactly his Savior. So look at Second Peter in chapter 1. As he writes shortly after this first letter, the second letter, listen to what he says. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter expects that he's not going to be around much longer. And so he writes, in light of the suffering that is upon them and is to come, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, anytime you have a therefore in Scripture, I think by now you should understand. You've heard me talk about this before. Anytime you find a therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. See, the therefore throws us back into his previous paragraph where he speaks of the saving work and the suffering of Christ on a cross. And then he summarizes that paragraph in those first words. He said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And see, the beauty, the beauty of the Christian faith is there's always a therefore. There's always a therefore. There's always a look, a way to look back to see what God has done. Tulian Chavinjian, who wrote the book Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, and I read that recently. I talked about that last week. He talks about, and I thought this was a beautiful way of putting it. He said, always in the letters of Paul and in Peter, there is, there is first the vertical indicative, which is followed by the horizontal imperative. Before he tells us how we are to live in the world, before he gives instructions about how we live down here, you know, first he gives us the, the vertical indicative. And an indicative, and, all, and it's amazing that in Peter's opening in the first chapter and a half, how many indicatives he uses in that opening chapter. Because he's, not, he's talking about things that are, the realities, the ultimate realities that are, that are in place, not because of anything you or I ever did, 
did, but only because of what Christ did for us. This is established by God through the work of Christ, and, and, it, and it, is, it is the ultimate reality, and we are anchored, if we anchor our lives to that vertical indicative, the ultimate reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, then he says, therefore, we can live in a different kind of way. We are not held back. We are not prisoner to the world. We can live in a freedom, in a dignity, and in a way that honors God. So he's saying that whenever he says, therefore, you look back, you, you, what you'll notice in Scripture is he will establish the, you know, that's the truth of what God has done for us so that we can go forward and we can live as we ought and as we want to honor Him. So he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Now, I've got to ask you, how many of us in this room have a love for God that comes anywhere close to the love relationship that Jesus expressed toward His Father? You come very close? You, you, you come close to loving God the way Jesus loved God? How many of us in this room, like Jesus, you've never sinned? Anybody want to raise your hand on that one? Alright. Anyone in here ever experienced more pain and more suffering in your life than Jesus? Are you getting his drift? Are you kind of picking up on what Peter's saying here? I mean, this is his anchor point, folks. Peter's getting ready to address their suffering, their persecution, and he's saying, hey guys, I know it's tough. I know you're hurting. And I also know it's about to get worse. But there is one, and there is only one, whose love for God exceeds all others who perfectly obeyed God's word and never sinned so that he could be made to suffer according to the will of God more intensely than you and I could ever imagine ourselves to suffer inwardly and outwardly under the full weight of not his sins, but ours. So if you follow the one, here, here's, here's Peter's point. If you follow the one that perfectly loved God, that perfectly obeyed Him, that completely and totally believed in God's promises and perfectly lived for Him, if He experienced pain and suffering and loss and rejection, don't think for a minute that you and I are going to get a cakewalk. Expect in this physical life a trail of tears. Our sufferings, Peter would say, are nothing, nothing to be compared to his. But because he suffered, even though we might, as Jeremiah, feel rejection and isolation, we are never alone. 
Paul talked about that a lot. You see, Paul said, here's my single goal in life, and, and this goes back to the beginning of the year when we started talking about squirrel theology. He said, here's my single goal that I could know Christ. And he's saying, not head knowledge, but like we talked about before, experiential knowledge. The real meat of the word is when we experience in in ourselves the word of God in a way that it, we, we come to understand its truth internally. And Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. And Paul had it in the right order. You see, because Paul understood the therefore. Paul got the therefore. See, Paul says, here's how I experienced first. I experienced the resurrection. I experienced new life. And then, and then I find fellowship when I'm dumped down into suffering. You see the difference? See, Christ suffered first. And He was resurrected. And Paul says, no, for us, we, we experience the resurrected life of Christ, you know, and then when we are dumped down into suffering, then we come to know Him with an intensity that we have never known Him before. Experientially. And so Paul says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, that's his anchor point right there. Then he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now the verb there, arm yourself, is the verb form of a noun for the word weapon in the Greek. What, Paul, what Peter is saying is weaponize yourself. Arm yourself. I mean, essentially what Peter's saying is whether you want to or not, or want to admit it or not, you're in a war. You're, you're going into battle. You probably do it, you do it every day. You, you may be unconscious and unaware, but there is a battle that's going on. There's a spiritual warfare, and, it, and, and Peter's saying, arm yourself. Now, it, it's interesting that that verb is in the middle voice, which in the, in, the, in the original language, it means that you've got to take personal responsibility. It's yours to do. See, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's what I thought about this week. From that little prayer we learned, well, God, I'm trusting you. Aren't you going to protect me? I have to arm myself? You get to see the difference. You're putting the responsibility in me. See, when you understand the therefore of what Christ has done for you, then you, you have to appropriate that in your life. You've got to make a determine, determination about how you're going to live and who you're going to trust and whose word is going to be a, the abiding, truthful word in your life. So he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking and that that's an interesting word. I, I'm going to give you several translations of that. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, with the same purpose, the New American Standard says. Uh, give me another one. Arm yourself also with the same mind, the New King James. Arm yourself with the same attitude that he had. And it, a word that speaks of the idea of, of what's the inner motivation of our lives. Arm yourself with the same resolve. Are you getting the picture here? You know, what Peter is, is 
is saying to us is that this is an urgent and immediate call and you've got to make a you've got to make a decisive choice about how you will live what peter's really saying is that we have got to be militant with every thought focused resolved intentional and and purposeful toward the completion of his mission in the world look at verse 2 so that so as to live for the rest of the time the rest of our lives the rest of our time in the flesh and he's not talking about flesh in the bad sense but in the just in the physical body in our in our physical selves no longer for human passions the word there's the same word for lust but human passions but for the what the will of god choosing the will of god be militant be focused be resolved be determined and, and you've got to arm yourself with that with that sense of purpose and determination so that you will complete the mission that he has called you to in life, which was his mission. As he said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. With the same intent and the same way of thinking. And if you ask me, well, Dave, what, what was Jesus thinking? You know, J- Jesus came to make maximum impact with his life by doing basically the four things that we talked about earlier this year. By serving He said, I came to serve, not to be served, by engaging with people from every walk of life, every background, every religion, Jew and Gentile, you know, Roman soldier, it didn't matter, by engaging his life with others, you know, by by building up in a small group and nurturing some followers that would be able to own his ministry and his work and carry it forward. And so he poured himself into those 12 guys, into a small group. You know, he, he lived sent and he trusted God. And he, when he was challenged, well, why do you do and say the things that you say? Jesus made it real clear in John chapter 5. What did he say? He said, look, I only say what the Father prompts me to say. I don't say anything of my own authority. And I don't do anything of my own authority. I see what the Father is doing, and I join Him in His work. I submit to Him in all things. And in order, you see, that I might be obedient to His call and to His will for my life. And and so he, He trusted in, and He walked in the will of God. And even to the point that He's in the garden, and He prays. And you remember that He prays, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way to get around what I'm about to experience, Father, I ask you i ask you to let this cup pass nevertheless not my will but thine be done your will and that's what peter is calling us to he's to the will of god to the will of god when we give our we give god our will then god gives us his strength He gives us his power. St. Augustine, years ago, wrote, Listen, will is to grace as horse is to rider. You need to think about that. Okay, jot it down, and so you'll think about it. Will is to grace as horse is to 
writer. We could update that a little bit and say it this way. Will is to grace as driver is to car. Think about it. When we abandon our personal desire and we seek to discover and to follow His will, the will of God will never take us where the grace of God will not supply our need. Because will is to grace as horse is to rider, as driver is to car. C.S. Lewis said, ultimately, there are really only two kinds of people in the whole wide world. There are people who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are people to whom God will say, all right, your will be done. You see the difference? There's only two kinds of people. There are some of us in this room that today could say, God, I want your will and yours alone. Now, if that happens, four things, I'm going to have to move real quickly. Four things are going to crop up in your life from what Peter says. Let me hit them real quick. Four things. If you choose the will of God for your life, you know, no matter what you, you, and just knowing that if you do, you're going to suffer and it's going to be difficult because these are difficult words. Peter didn't, you know, wasn't sugarcoating anything here. There was no way to sugarcoat what the, the, the church, the early church was about to experience. But he wanted to fortify them and he said, he said, in order for you to have the strength, you're going to have to, you're going to have to arm yourself. You're going to have to be ready for the battle and, and, and you're going to have to submit to the will of God. And if you do, four things will begin to crop up in your life. You can look for these four things. Number one, look for look look to win your battle with sin. First thing Peter says, look to win your battle of sin. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Did you get that? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So what do you begin to look for in your life? If you're going to follow the will of God, you're going to begin to win your battle with sin. Now, I need to explain something to you. Folks, the word for sin here is the word hamartia. There's several words in the Greek for sin. This is the word that literally means it's the idea of missing the mark. Many of us would make the mistake of saying, well, winning my battle of sin, that's all about stuff I'm not supposed to do. Well, there's some other sins that are stuff that you're supposed to do you ain't doing. You get it? There's sins of commission, sins of omission, and this is that word. Essentially, just means that you are missing the mark with your life. God has a purpose and intent for your life. When you begin to fit into His will, you begin to discover what that purpose is for your life. How you're supposed to serve, how you're supposed to, how you're supposed to engage with people, how you're supposed to be in life with people and be in nurturing each other. You know, you those when you when you get there. You're going to begin to understand what he's doing. And, you know, the goal and purpose of your life will be to bring him glory. You will quit missing the mark all the time. 
You quit going off on tangents, shooting arrows off in every direction. You'll get focused. But, you know, that focus is you. Suffering will bring that about in your life. And I can't take time to illustrate that, but I'll just say this. King David. When did King David get in the most trouble? Think about it. He'd conquered everybody. He was sitting on top of the world. You know, he built this big palace. It was time to go to war, and he said to Joab, his general, You know, hey, I'm just going to delegate that. I'm going to stay back and going to pull out, you know, um, you know, some wineskin from 954 B.C. and, and uh, have a nice meal. And he was just, you know, he was, he was just sitting pretty, wasn't he? He was, uh, he, you know, he was, he sort of, he was on top of things. He was enjoying the good life, wasn't he? And he looks out off his balcony, and, he, and what happens? And he sees temptation bathing down below. And he says, who is that woman? And, 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 here's the, and, and his servant says, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Guys, 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 seriously. David had 30 men who were, just, who were loyal to him to the death. I mean, it was from that group of 30 men that one time they were fighting a battle. And he said he, you know, he was, he, he just was longing for a drink from Bethlehem's well. You remember? Which was behind enemy lines. And some of those guys in that 30 men risked their life and limb, their very lives, to go get to dip a bucket of water in the well in Bethlehem and bring it to him to drink. He had 30 guys that were so loyal to him, they would lay their lives down for him. Uriah the Hittite was one of the ones on the list. David, what are you thinking? See, if you follow David's life, man, started out rejected by his family. You know, I mean, he wasn't even there when Samuel came looking to anoint a king. He was off. They had him off in the fields by himself, isolated, tending sheep. You know, I mean, there are a lot of commentators believe that David was treated as though he was an illegitimate child and might have been. He was just he was not part of the regular part of the family. You know, what I'm saying and, 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 you know, he grows up, grows up out there in the wild. He has to learn to trust God on his own, fighting bears and, and mountain lions for the sheep where he learns how somehow that he can trust God. And he and he and he begins to. And that's where he becomes a man after God's own heart. And then he goes to, to serve Saul in the palace after he defeats Goliath. But he, you know, but he has to overcome the ridicule of his own brothers that even shows up on the battle lines. You know, but then after his victory, then Saul gets jealous of him and, and throws a spear and tries to kill him. And then David spends 10 years in a, in a cave, hiding out in a cave. And you know what I'm saying? He wasn't tempted during those times, though, was he? While he was suffering... Suffering has a way of kind of purging that stuff. It's when you and I get real comfortable and things are going our way. Man, we ought to pray and ask God, bring on some more troubles, God. Because I need to learn how to walk with you in obedience. Anybody praying that prayer? I'm not praying it. (laughs) I figure I got plenty of troubles. I'm looking at some of them. All right. Seriously, suffering has a way of, of purging things from our life and making us think about what the what would bring the most glory to God. You know, and 
I could go on. Okay, number two. Okay, look, first of all, to win your battle with sin. Okay, suffering will do that. Number two, watch for unhappy, an unhappy response from many who once were closest to you. Verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Wow. Oh, my freshman year just flashed right before my eyes. Anyone else? Have you all heard of Project X? This movie, and now we got all these teenagers that are emulating this movie, throwing these massive wild parties and just totally trashing out. You know, and there was a report on the news that they go in and they find a house that's, you know, that's been under foreclosure, like a mansion, and they just, they set up and they, they tweet everyone and they set up a party and they come in and they just have a drunken orgy and they literally just destroy the place. Wow. You, you know what's really interesting about this text? Is it Peter is saying to these people reading the letter, that's exactly how you guys lived. He is assuming they were involved in all kinds of stuff. Isn't that interesting? That doesn't interest you? He's saying, guys, this is the way you lived. Selfishly. It was incredible. You see, but that's the past. Listen to what he says. And with respect, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they slander you, they talk bad about you. I have a friend when I was, when I was doing student ministry down in, in a college station and his son was committed, to, you know, was a young, young, young believer teenager in high school and their youth group had done this true love weights emphasis and so he had signed the card that he was going to save himself and be a virgin you know on his on his wedding night and they had this big party for the you know for the high school there and uh, you know it's and somebody's parents were out of town and so man all of the high school showed up and man there was all kinds of stuff going on and Bobby walks into the house and and some of his buddies are standing down there at the foot of the stairwell there and says hey hey Bobby Bobby, Caroline's waiting for you upstairs. Going up. So he walks up and walks in to one of the bedrooms, and, and there he's confronted by, there's Caroline. She's standing there stark naked. She's waiting for him. You know what he does? He says, Caroline, put your clothes on. I'm backing out of this room. I'm not going there with you. And he turned on his heels, and he walked down the stairs. Did he walk down to the applause of that crowd of his buddies waiting at the foot of the stairs? Did they congratulate him that he had uh, he had made a fine moral stand in his life? No. They laughed at him. They cussed him. They called him stuff that I can't mention in this sermon. But you know what happened to Bobby? And I changed his name, by the way, because my wife would recognize. Oh, dang it. I just gave it away. Okay, okay. <sighs> he got stronger. In his faith. He got stronger. He got more resolved than ever to honor God with his life. See, watch out for some people who are really close to you to get unhappy with what you're doing. Oh. There's a third thing. Start to see yourself in good company. Start to see yourself in good company. I don't have time to unpack this fully. 
You might feel ostracized or isolated at times or rejected, but you are not alone. Your, your master is with you. Your feet are treading where others have trod. Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And some translations say to those who are already dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I don't have time to unpack that. You know, but the reality is, Peter either means that there are saints who have gone before you who are now dead, that have embraced the truth of the gospel, and they have suffered for it, and he's saying you're in good company. Or he may be referring to, as some commentators say, uh, this idea of the that we were formerly dead selves. We were... You know, we were dead inwardly by, by our own trespasses and sins, and we have been made alive in Christ and now positioned in Him, alive in Him. Either way, you're in good company among those who embrace the gospel with their lives and whose lives are changed by it, and they walk and they journey, not worrying about what the world, how the world will judge them, but how they, but they walk in accordance with and they live by the Spirit of God in their lives. Look for a fourth thing. Be looking for the coming of Christ, Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Watch for His return. There is nothing like suffering which will raise that yearning in our heart for the ultimate reality. Suffering enables us to turn loose of the world, to cast it off, trusting that what is coming is much better. And so Peter is saying, look for His coming. You, you may suffer martyrdom, or before he comes back, I mean, he may return before. But you look for him, and you fix your eyes on him. I thought about this this week. Um, Linda Mathis lost her dear mother, Mary Lou, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I had the opportunity to be with them in the hospital several times, and and though she was alert and she was lucid, um, so much of that time, um, she her body had withered and she was in pain and in difficulty. And when Linda saw her suffering, Linda was able to let her go. And she, Mary, was able to let go, you know what I'm saying, and of this world so that she could what? So she could... Go to be with our Lord. And there's nothing like suffering in our lives that will cause us to look for His return, to look for Him, and to be able to let loose of this world. So I encourage you, commit to the will of God for your lives and start looking. If you do, this would be the evidence that you are surrendering to His will, that you know you are beginning to win your battle with sin. There are going to be other people in your life that are going to not respond favorably to that idea. You may be maligned and you know mistreated or misunderstood by them. That's going to happen. You don't have to act. You know you don't have to call attention to yourself like 
you know, like Brian did in the drama this morning. That's not what it's about. It's not about calling attention to yourself. It's just living faithfully and letting the chips fall where they may. And they will sometimes fall on the side that you will suffer at the hands of others. But you will start to see yourself in the in good company with other saints to embrace the, the gospel. And you will find yourself not keeping your eyes on this world, but, but letting loose of this world and looking for what is ultimate truth and ultimate reality with him in the end. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you that you give grace. That with the commit, uh, the commitment of our will, you give grace for the follow through. And you make provision for our lives, even though we suffer discomfort. You Reveal yourself to us in incredible ways. Father, keep doing it. Build our faith, our trust in you alone. Amen.